0: I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill
1: Church. Uh, I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff, and I'm still an evangelical. I'm working on that, though. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we are excited for this show. We have a guest who has been on MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, he is widely regarded as a well-known and respected religion journalist, has written for the Atlantic Religion News Service, and I just saw on his Twitter, he is a retired Twitter gladiator. So we are excited that he is here. Uh, Jonathan Merritt is joining us. Welcome.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure.
1: Great. And I should I should also say your, your most recent book, which we'll uh, get to some questions about, is Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Ah, uh, why sacred words are vanishing and how we can revive them. So, we'll we'll get to some questions about that for you. But uh, to start off, I'm I'm assuming a lot of people are probably familiar with your evangelical story. But for those who aren't, do you want to just share maybe a general overview of your history with evangelical faith in your life?
2: Oh gosh, um, yes. I you know I come at uh, this conversation honestly. Evangelicalism is uh, my heritage. I started to attend an evangelical church before i could even speak um you know it was the week after i was born that i was brought to sunday school at a baptist church in kentucky where my dad was the senior pastor um, my dad is a a minister even to this day he's a television preacher on tbn you can watch him at 8 30 sunday mornings eastern time and uh when i was Um, In college, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest evangelical denomination in the United States. Um, I attended Liberty University, Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, which is an evangelical college. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, followed by a United Methodist seminary. And right now I'm talking to you from my apartment, which is on the campus of an Episcopal seminary in in Manhattan, where I live. I'm not a student here, but I'm I am um, lucky enough to live here. So, and I'm an elder at a church um, in New York City that is an ecumenical church. We're not evangelical. Um, all are welcome at, at our church. And so we're still very much Christian, um, but uh, we are very much not um, evangelical. So I have moved outside of evangelicalism, but have stayed within the faith
1: great and and there's a part of your story um which feel free to share what you want to share about this but in 2012 um you were publicly outed um it wasn't something that you controlled and you know being that you were involved in the southern baptist denomination you said your dad was a pastor and and the president i mean you were very much involved in preaching and doing ministry yet you know this core part of who you are who jonathan Merritt is was revealed outside of your control, like you didn't control the world and people finding out about this. Um, can you talk to us about that? What was that like? I mean, for those of us who are straight, there's just no, you know, context that we have for that. What, what was that like for you at that time?
2: Yeah, you know, I was, I, I knew that I was gay since at least middle school, um, but I had had a lot of stories um, about what that meant would mean if I were to ever say it out loud, if people were to know. You know, I grew up in um, the early, I was born in 1982, so I was a child of the 80s, which meant that not only that I grew up in the world of Rubik's Cubes and reading Rainbow and Teddy Ruxpin, but I also came of age during the American um, AIDS crisis. So, you know, the the media had told me all kinds of stories about what would happen to me uh, if I were ever to embrace that part of myself, that I would get this gay disease, that it would be a death sentence. And then there were the stories that my faith community taught me. Abomination was the most electric word I remember hearing. And even though I, I didn't really know what a, that word meant at the time, I knew it was an awful thing to be. I knew that that was the kind of thing that could get a person sent to hell. Um, and so there were all of these stories that were swirling about how my family would reject me, how my friends would cast me out, how my livelihood as someone who worked within the quote-unquote Christian industrial complex would would sort of dry up and go away. And as you mentioned, in 2012, uh, 29, on the eve of the my 30th birthday um i was outed by somebody who i trusted with too many secrets and uh my world at that point um really was was chaos um i did lose a lot of job opportunities they dried up uh, i was on staff at a southern baptist church and uh, it wasn't long before I, I i had to depart from that job that i really loved actually, uh, a church that I loved people that I loved from the preschoolers to the octogenarians. I loved that church. And also I knew that I could not call that church home and, and, um, be honest about this part of who I was. And, uh, so, uh, it was, it was a time of a lot of grief and it was also, um, a time when I got to have a lot of conversations that were long overdue and I got to embrace parts of myself that I never thought I could. And I got to see old friends show up in new ways. And so it was a terrible, wonderful time.
0: I wonder how that experience of being outed uh, impacted your feelings about the nature of public outings in general. And, and, and I know that most people would agree that it's it's everybody's own personal decision to make about what to share about themselves but there is different feelings about about a, a public figure especially if they're actively causing harm or perceived to be actively causing harm to the community that they are secretly a part of um do, do you think that there's ever an appropriate time to out somebody what what are your feelings on that
2: yeah, you know, um there there are some very good arguments uh for um a kind of general rule that outing is bad and also a caveat that if someone is actively perpetrating harm against uh the LGBTQ community that um it can be a kind of countermeasure. Um and I'm sympathetic to those arguments. Um You know in my experience i never preached about uh being gay um at my church i had you know we didn't have like a conversion therapy program that i was supporting and everything that i had had written was kind of from a progressive evangelical perspective uh there was an article that i had written a couple years before this in usa today where i basically uh, it was a polemic against the this uh, quote-unquote "love the sinner, hate the sin" um, jargon that you find in evangelicalism, and so people uh, the evangelicals had always seen me as kind of, um, uh, you know, like potentially compromised. And uh, the 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 article that encouraged this guy to to sort of out me, not sort of, but to out me. Was for the Atlantic, and it was titled "In Defense of Eating Chick Fil A." Uh, there was a big controversy that was going on with Chick Fil A, and well, you might say, well, that you know that causes harm secondarily to the community to write that article. However, when I I would stand by that article today, and I'm very much a part of this community, I said in that article that. Uh, that my argument had nothing to do with my views about gay marriage, but instead was raising really legitimate questions about the efficacy of boycott culture. Uh, It was raising really legitimate questions about the feasibility of tying consumerism to politics. So now you can't shop at Urban Outfitters and you can eat Chips Ahoy, but not Oreos. I mean, how do you live in a pluralistic politically pluralistic society, a consumeristic society, if, if, if that sort of is the standard for how you spend your money. And I was raising, I think, very legitimate questions that were not by any stretch of the imagination anti-gay. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was sort of interpreted by that individual as enough of a reason, um, to, to sort of out me publicly. Um, but, but I think you're you know you raise a you raise an important um, point, which is it's a gray area. It's an ethically gray area. I think most people say your story is yours and it's yours to tell. And um, and so it, it's a very traumatic experience to be outed. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to arguments that say, look, if I was if I was out here, like if you study the history of conversion therapy, Uh, You find organizations, many of them, like Exodus International, who were run by people who were, you know, secretly going to gay bars on the weekends, but then causing all kinds of psychological trauma to the LGBT communities that they were um, connected to through their work. And I think that's deeply problematic. And, And there is, I think, a pretty valid case for saying, hey, wait a minute, I was having a beer with this guy. Uh, at this, you know, gay honky talk bar. Meanwhile, he's going out and creating all kinds of harm that will take individuals years, decades, lifetimes uh, to process that um, that wasn't the case with me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's complicated. And then and then I oftentimes, or maybe not oftentimes, but there's been times where I've seen uh, uh, outings or attempts at outings that themselves feel homophobic like oh can you believe how gross this person actually is like it's not just that they're hypocritical but like i'm thinking of of uh lindsey graham and and people calling him by by a woman's name some some nickname that that he may have used whatever and and the insinuations that the needling of him being uh uh even more feminine than he may come across or whatever it's just it strikes me as as is, is homophobic while while proclaiming that they're doing this to to uplift and protect LGBTQ well, folks and, and that's
2: and, and among a lot of of my I, I'm a, I consider myself to be a fairly liberal person, a fairly progressive person. Um, and there is this affliction uh, uh within um, my segment of society uh where people have been infected with a kind of progressive amnesia that they have woken up to who they are to their true selves to their true beliefs and then they forget that they spent a lifetime not believing or understanding those things and so suddenly they reflect back onto essentially previous versions of themselves with a real lack of grace that i think is culturally corrosive so it it does us um, a lot of good i think to revisit past versions of ourselves so that we can deal gently with people who are like that and i've never met a gay person who wasn't once a tender young person who was themselves in the closet scared to death confused and unsure how to have what would turn out to be the most important conversations of their lives
0: Hmm. yeah I, i i i i feel I I have to, 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 to have grace with my younger self and I have to remember my younger self, like thinking back on when my sister came out to me and I was attending Mars Hill at the time and I was not gracious. I did not take it well. And our relationship for several years barely existed. It was, it was really, really awful what my whole family did to her. And we're incredibly close now. And we've, talked through these, these, these issues of, of how I treated her and how far I've come and what I've learned and, and how grateful she is for the relationship that we have now. And, and it can be easy to forget that that was a process (laughs) that, (laughs) that that was growth that, that I had to go through. Um, we've talked a few times on this show about Lonnie Frisbee, um, Dave and I were recently guests on a film podcast called Linoleum Knife, talking with uh, a couple of film critics about the the new movie Jesus Revolution and, and Lonnie. Um, but we haven't discussed the film on this show. I'm wondering if you've if you've seen it, if if Lonnie is someone who has meant anything to you uh, as a gay Christian specifically, uh, and whether or not that's true. What what your thoughts are on? The ways that the evangelical establishment currently treats uh lgbtq folks whose work and ministry they've benefited from
2: yeah that's a that's there's a lot of questions there one uh i have not seen the film although uh i've been recommended uh the film by several people including my parents who said that that it made them cry which is sweet and uh you know i i tend to be a little I have, I'm like like a lot of people, like yourself probably, I have a limited number of hours in the day and a lot of uh, things competing for those. And so I don't tend to watch Christian movies a lot because uh the christian movies are notoriously bad they're terrible (laughs) (laughs) and uh so i wasn't planning to see it and also um i might uh watch it because of of some of the things that i've heard about it and i'm I, i really hope that it is a good movie lonnie frisbee is someone i have a cursory knowledge of you know this kind of the hippie preacher quintessential hippie preacher but not someone that i was um, I was heavily influenced by or really influenced by at all um in 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 my life. but i I think you have you've raised a better question, which is what do you do with people who have influenced your life, who turn out to be gay or turn out to be allies? Uh, I think of another really great example is a lot of people who now have conflicted feelings about Amy Grant, you know, who's mm-hmm. uh, there was a big news story about how she was doing uh, I think it was her lesbian sister's wedding. and people saying, was like oh I can't listen to... it was in her niece, okay.
0: yeah,
2: a family member. Mm-hmm. And you know, people were like, well, you know, can they listen to her now because they feel in some way um uh betrayed by her? And I find the whole conversation about uh people who are gay uh, who turn out to be gay to have been gay or people who are LGBTQ allies. I know it happens on both sides um, of or on all sides of the debate. But the idea that like because I don't agree with you or understand you or your identity in this one way, I can't learn anything from you uh, feels very it feels rather binary. Um, I understand why fundamentalists do it, because they love they love binary thinking and it's and fundamentalism is predicated on it. But I see it a lot even among many progressives uh where everything is you're either this or that good or bad i can either i either listen to i either listen to and like everything you say or nothing you say and um and i just really struggle to live my life that way um but i understand why a lot of fundamentalists do
1: yeah um if we could shift gears a little bit here too um with i just have such a broad range of of questions to ask you because as a religion writer you've you've tackled so many different topics. But I noticed on your Twitter feed, uh Ash Wednesday, you had a thread on death anxiety. And uh, oh, yeah. you write, ever, ever since I was a child, I've had death anxiety. I worry a lot about when I'll die, how I'll die, and what waits for me on the other side of the veil that separates this world from the next. Uh Thanatophobia, I'm a podcast host, you learn how to talk. I hope I got that right. Uh, is the fancy word therapists use to describe this kind of fearful obsession. And it's something that disproportionately affects people uh, raised in certain religious traditions. Um, Can you talk more about death anxiety? Uh, You know, something we all can relate to, but then uh, the connection to religious traditions. Why do you think people with certain religious traditions have a higher death anxiety? When one of the things that we've heard from evangelicalism uh, kind of more the simplistic message is, do you know where you'll go if you die tonight? You know, you can be certain about this. um how, how do you parse all those issues?
2: Well, you know um i I I'll say, I when I moved to New York, I suddenly, and that was ten years ago now. um I, I was suddenly thrust into an environment where, um, People were not, by and large, raised like I was, Uh, where, you know, in the community that I was raised in, everybody basically believed what I believed. Everybody talked like I talked. Everybody had a kind of common way of interacting with people. The question in the South, particularly when I was growing up, that people would ask is not, do you go to church, but where do you go to church? And, uh, when I came to New York, it was like the reverse. And so what I began to realize is, is that there were certain things that I kind of had assumed perhaps unconsciously were kind of true of everyone. And, um, I had to, I was disabused of those notions. And one of those is the idea that everyone, when they were a small child had, um, parents and teachers and mentors and neighbors who constantly talk to them about dying and what it would be like when they were dying and stoked their imagination about what their day of death would be like. Um, wow. It is a it's it's bizarre. Um, and yet that was my reality. And um, you know, ideas have consequences, particularly when you introduce children in their most formative years to those ideas. And so when you're constantly telling a child who is only a few years out of the birth canal, uh, when you're constantly forcing them to confront their infinitude and mortality before they have any of the tools they need to begin wrestling with those kinds of questions, um, it has a profound effect. And so I think about death every single day. I think about it multiple times a day. I'm scared to death of it, uh, I, I, I've lay awake at night and have fantasies about it against my will. Uh, I have thoughts about it that, uh, a, a psychologist would call intrusive. I don't want to have these thoughts and yet they, they pry their way into my psyche. And so that is the burden that I have to bear because I grew up in a movement that was obsessed with death. And it wasn't just obsessed with death because it was important for their theology. They were obsessed with death because it was critical for their survival, because they needed everybody else to be afraid about death. And they need every they needed everybody else to, um, to believe that they had the answer to absolve them of the anxiety they had about death so that they could continue to perpetuate their movement so i both understand why they talked about those things the way they did even to me as a young child and i also have to lament the fact that now i have to deal with the fruit of the world that i grew up in
0: i think there's there's a lot of ways that that death is a factor in 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 evangelicalism and the way that as kids we experience this and and the fears that develop from that yes yes there's this you always need to be afraid of death because you need to trust in Jesus you make you need to make sure you're going to heaven but I think at the same time there's so much time spent downplaying the the significance and ability to appreciate life saying you know you know this is this is but a blink of an eye this you know we have such limited ability to to taste and see and hear anything compared to what it's going to be like in heaven like this is just eh this is the appetizer like and 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 it 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 makes it difficult to to try to be in the moment to try to be embodied to try to take time to appreciate what we have now because despite whatever level of certainty we may have that we picked the correct belief we can't know that 100%. This may be all we have and appreciating what there actually is and and you can have a, a a a religious spin on it of appreciating what god created for us and and inspired people to create here. Like we're we're supposed to enjoy life. We're supposed to 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 breathe it in and and taste things and see things. And I feel like I spent so much time hearing eh but like why cuz cuz heaven is a billion times better than any of this mm-hmm. did you feel like you had that
2: so the interesting thing about psychology in general is that um you can introduce simul- similar um stimuli to two different children of the same age and background and they will respond to it in different ways right so you maybe you grew up in an abusive home a physically abusive home one child becomes depressive and one child becomes aggressive. One child retreats into his shell and, and lives in, in kind of a fearful state. The other externalizes his rage. Um, in the same way, when you talk about death, you can have kind of different reactions. Some people who 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 become very aware of and conscious of death Um, exhibit a greater appreciation for life, they Mm -hmm. they start to say, yes, because this terrible thing or scary thing or uncertain thing is coming, then I'm going to live every moment with gusto. And I'm going to realize that every minute of today is precious and should not be wasted. Other people will internalize that same information in the opposite way. And they'll start to say, how can I enjoy any minute of this day knowing that that's what waits for me at the end of this. And so then they become, instead of freeing them to live fully, they are imprisoned and trapped by obsessive thoughts about this terrible thing that looms out, that looms looms out in the future somewhere that could happen, as you said, any minute. And uh, I- I'm somebody who, uh, for whatever reason, drew the short stick and uh, I'm in the latter group.
0: Well, I think our our... Our generation also got a heavy dose of, of the rapture theology. Um, I, I assume that was part of your childhood. It, it was for me. Um, but we also we're, we're pretty much the same age, so we are also the Columbine generation, and the post-columbine Christian martyrdom industry was was huge. And this like desire to be killed for Jesus um mm-hmm. was was a, a phenomenon did was was that something that that impacted you were were you uh you know reading the 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 jesus freak uh uh diaries of of or w- whatever was <laughs> that the fox's book of martyrs jesus, jesus freak, freak edition jesus freak book
1: yeah. put up by dc talk yeah
2: <laughs> yeah no i i i was not i mean i was not huge into the left behind series i wasn't mm-hmm. somebody I, I my dad um we're going to go real deep in the theological weeds here, but I think your listeners can handle it. Uh, he (laughs) believed in a post-tribulational rapture. Mm -hmm. Um, so he didn't believe in the rapture where like at any moment we can all be gone and, uh, you're, you're left behind. So left behind theology was not his theology, but it was so, it was like, uh, it was, it was in the water, right? It it is like, Yeah, I still got it at the Christian school I went to. I still got it when they sent me to whatever that like Halloween alternative, like horror house was. So I still got that theology. And there was the idea that no matter what, there was a potential spiritual reality where the world could be split down the middle like firewood and some of us would end up in very good situation and some of us would end up in a very bad situation and you kind of knew that you were going to be in the good one if you did the right things and said the magical incantation, but you couldn't totally trust it, you 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 weren't totally sure, which is why I had a kind of um, compulsive conversions, I think a lot of people can yeah. can and have been through that as well in bed at night going, okay, God, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just say the sinner's prayer again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the incantation, make sure that you come into my heart and live in my heart just in case it didn't stick last night. Yep. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a sign of a mental health disorder. And yet um, that was the kind of world that I lived in over and over and over. You know, you will see it in other ways with hand-washing. Right, mm-hmm. compulsive hand washing. Well, if you're saying the Sinner's Prayer every night, it's similar to the person who can't stop checking the stove to make sure the stove is off. It's very similar. It's a sign that you're under mental duress. And a lot of people mm-hmm. who were raised by really well-meaning fundamentalists showed signs of mental duress from a very young age.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting to think about that in that in that context.
0: Uh, this is Zach before we jump back into the second half of the episode I just wanted to give a quick shout out to listener Brittany who was the first person to send us to tweet at us with just the word alligator after listening to part two of our uh, Oscar special uh, wherein we said if you if you made it all the way to the very end Uh, uh, congratulations and and to 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 let us know that you're 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 part of the few the bold the brave um dedicated uh tithers of time uh to to the vcw podcast uh to just send that one word to us and we'd know that that meant you listened all the way to the end uh of our longest episode ever (laughs) so long that we had to split it up into two so Thank you so much for listening, Brittany. Everybody else, um, be more like Brittany. Or don't. Um, It's up to you. You have agency. But in this one way, maybe we be uh, more like Brittany. That'd be cool. All right, back to the show.
1: Earlier in the interview, you were talking about when you first moved to New York City, and this is uh, going to be connected to your latest book here, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. And in the beginning of that book, which is just, it's beautifully written, by the way, I have not read the whole thing, which is you know, I, I usually try to, like Zach said, we try to read the full book before interviewing a guest, but I'm, I'm really enjoying reading it. And you're describing New York with, you know, sunlight off of buildings and the water. And I've only been to New York, I think twice in my life and very brief moments. So it's like, I'm reading your book. And I'm like, I want to go there. I want to see New York again. Um, but you talk about, you know, coming from the South and you encounter a woman who is a member of the Baha'i faith. And how this seemed like a kind of revelation to you about the language we use in religion and how it perhaps needs to be repurposed or revitalized because kind of, you know, what what is it that we're actually talking about? And you have a great section kind of in the beginning of the book talking about words, even reaching out to some of your Christian friends who said quote some admitted they felt confused about what the spiritual words actually mean in many cases the confusion doesn't necessarily result from a lack of knowledge or experience with speaking of god sometimes it's the opposite people in insular religious communities might have used some words so often they don't know what they mean anymore the words have become shopworn and now slip through the fingers and then um a little bit on the next page you say have you ever given a love offering or started a prayer chain have you asked God for traveling mercies or a hedge of protection do you ever talk about doing life together or seeing it. the fruit uh... of someone's life have you ever had a quiet time or confronted someone with uh, truth in love or labeled someone a backslider if so then you may be fluent in Christianese and the reasons for disliking Christianese are legion and many are legitimate Unquote, you go on to kind of talk about, you know, the cliches that people live by. Um, so I guess, you know, to the to the point of your book, why, why is it important for us to repurpose and revitalize some of these words? And even for people who aren't Christians, like um, why should they be concerned about why why is sacred language in society important?
2: Yeah. Well, there's two kinds when I talk about sacred speech, I'm talking about two different things and you brought up one of those there and I want to kind of delineate them because I treat them differently. One is what you would call cultural Christian language or Christianese. And I'm very much uninterested in revitalizing that. That's just uh, mm-hmm. colloquialisms that we use. It's communal language. And by the way, it's not, Christianity is just not bad. Um, common language can be very good for a community and can be healthy for a community. It can signal that you're a part. It can help you to condense big ideas into short phrases. So it's not inherently bad, even if it sort of can be confusing or strange. Um, What I'm what I'm more interested in is what you might call like historical Christian language or even historical moral language. So spiritual language, words like grace. I mean, that's a word. If you look at Google ngram data, it has decreased in the 20th century in usage in in the English language by over 50 percent. So have courage words, compassion words, kindness words. These are all words that point to immaterial or metaphysical realities. What is compassion, right? You can't see compassion. Uh, you can see what compassion kind of looks like, or its its effects look, but you can't see that thing. So it's a spiritual reality. Um, but we're not talking about those things with regularity. They are all in decline. We're ha- we're both using sacred speech less and less. And we're having spiritual conversations less and less than we used to. Well, why does that matter? It matters for a number of reasons, but one of them being that that the things that we talk about, because we are we are languaging creatures. We, we primarily communicate meaning through language and story. Uh, very, very different. Um, even then if you look at uh, dolphins or bees, humans are unique. Homo sapiens are very unique, no, no, there is no other creature that communicates with the kind of color and texture that we humans do with our words. And so it's how we communicate meaning, but when we communicate meaning through our words, the words that we use shape the thoughts that we think right? The, the, the words that you you and I are using and, and that you're hearing that I'm saying are shaping the things that you think about now and the things that you're maybe they'll haunt you after this conversation. Maybe you'll go on to talk about it with somebody else. Hey, I had a really interesting conversation with this guy on my podcast today. Maybe the same thing will happen with people who listen to these words. So the words that we use shape the thoughts that we think and the thoughts that we think shape the people that we become, the societies that we build, uh, they will shape the kinds of, of families that we create, the kinds of businesses we build. And so what you realize is, and, and there are a lot of studies on this, that um, societies that that do or don't talk about certain types of things because of the way the constraints in their own language or their own language trends, they, the societies look very, very different. So for example, societies that when they talk about justice, talk about retributive justice like us. You have legal systems then that function in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go to societies that don't talk about justice in those ways, then they function in very different ways. So a great example I use in the book is that there are some, like we have a we have a language that will tend to assign blame. I'll say, Billy wrecked the car. Well, whose fault was it? It, it, the blame is already in the way that the English language works. I'm already thinking it's probably Billy's fault. And so we have a justice system that tends to try to assign fault right off the bat. If you go to other societies that you, that tend toward passive construction, so it doesn't matter if Billy was driving or not, that the, their language will communicate the car was wrecked it will tend to absolve blame, you'll find they have justice systems that look totally different. Now that's all the way down the line, but even you move it closer, if we are not talking about compassion, if we're not talking about grace, if we're not talking about courage, we will be less compassionate, gracious and courageous people. And so we have to reinvigorate the language of faith. If we wanna be the kinds of people who are animated by these kinds of things rather than just by capitalistic society or consumeristic society or celebrity culture all of which have their own vocabularies that are proliferating at rapid rates
1: now this this may not be true of words like grace and compassion but for those of us who are committed christians in you know 2023 like seeking better conversations about jesus and religion um how do we how do we deal with the reality that there's a lot of people out there who have so much trauma from church i mean it sounds like you have it um with with rapture and with death um so there's certain words that that may trigger like a response in somebody when talking about um religious faith and having these conversations that i think are some of the most important conversations we can ever have um how can we have better conversations and be more sensitive to you know the reality of evangelicals and and people who have trauma, who have been really hurt in church?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, if you read, if somebody here reads Learning to Speak God from Scratch, or if you look in the book, you'll see. Uh, part of what I did was I conducted, or I commissioned a study of over a thousand Americans and asked them, how many of you speak God? Which is to say, how many of you have a, a spiritual or religious conversation? How frequently do you have these conversations? Very, very infrequently, we found, even among Regular church attenders. So Americans are not talking about these things very often. But then I asked a follow up question to oversample, which was um, uh, why not? And there was a sizable portion who said, among other things, like these words have become too political. Uh, I don't understand what these words mean. Some of them say they've been hurt by these words before. Uh, You know, words like saved, uh, sin, these words have been by by many communities have been filed down in such a way that they have really sharp edges and and meaning when it, words do not have meaning words have no meaning no inherent meaning they're they're they are cardboard boxes they're carriers of meaning mm-hmm. we put within those boxes the meaning that we want those boxes to carry and you have to understand that and and then the thing that gives meaning to a word is twofold. You have uh, a definition, which is the way a word is used. And then you have connotation, which is the way a word feels as a result of the way a word has, has been used. And connotation is an important part of meaning. It's a kind of emotional meaning of a word. And so you're you're right, a lot of words have a negative connotation, but they're important concepts, or they could be important concepts, but they've been misused or abused or misunderstood or misdefined. And um, the question is, is what do we do with those words? What do we do with words that now have been used to harm? Um, I I give in the book um, three approaches to uh to sort of how would you respond um to to words um like that and uh you'll see I think one of them I call I won't remember I won't remember the exact uh phrase I use but uh there's the idea that you would like pitch words that you would get rid of the words that you don't like um and then there's a uh, substituting words. So you go, you go, I don't like the word God. So I'll just use source, right? Because God is harmful. Now I'll just pick a new word. Well, it's a still a signpost pointing out a thing that God was this another signpost pointing at the same thing. You haven't fixed the problem by substituting the word. You've just chosen a different word. You, you, the reality hasn't changed. You pitch the word, well, you're not you're not you're not using the word sin, but how do you describe the thing in the world that the chasm between isness and oughtness? But we all know like, that the isness of the world is not the oughtness. Like we see bad things happening and that's not the way they ought to be. Well, how do you describe the difference between isness and oughtness? Well, when we get rid of sin, what we realize is, is we just don't talk about it at all. Well, how do you begin to close the gap between isness and oughtness if you don't have a word to describe what that is? So you can either just get rid of it and not talk about it, which doesn't solve anything you can substitute it which doesn't it solves how you feel about something but it doesn't change that you're still talking about that reality or you can reimagine you can learn to speak god from scratch as i say it's called uh, in linguistics you would call it wordplay you can begin yeah. to intentionally say hey um you when when i talk about sin i'm going to stop and i'm going to when i use that in conversation which by the way I don't think it's really helpful to just go talking about sin on the street corner or the subway platform. But when we have these conversations in intentional communities where we know, understand, see, and love each other, then um, we can have these conversations and we can have them in intentional ways where we can say, how has this word been used? How has this word been used in a way that's harmful? How can we reimagine this word in a way that's more life-giving and loving and better represents the God that we're that we're kind of trying to approximate with this language? And then we can begin to breathe new life into these words so that they they can be, you know, I think of a a biblical image that we can sort of bang the swords into plowshares. That these mm-hmm. things that caused harm can be refashioned so that they're life giving again. We can reclaim these words in my community, and it's problematic. But I'll give you some examples. in In the in communities of color, uh, the N word in in my community, the F word. Uh, these communities have said, "I'm going to reclaim this word." because you have weaponized it, and we can actually reclaim it and reshape it. That is a, that's a that's word play, that's a language game that's happening uh, by these communities. I think the same thing that can happen in Christian communities, that words that have been used either within the community or from without, people have used these to inflict pain and harm on us. Within these communities, we can actually reclaim those words, refashion them, and then redeploy them in a new way that's a way to actually disarm the abuser. And I think there's a case uh, that can be made for how that can be really life-giving to to a community.
0: Yeah, it would, it would be really nice to see intentional use of specific religious words backed up by an action that displays the meaning of the word as it's understood by the person that used it uh, in a positive way that could move it to mean that. I'm thinking of the word reform right now. Um, and I had written up a question about, about the SBC and, and when, when there are organizations with such systemic problems that, that have caused so much harm to people, um, but are still very powerful, you hear the word reform a lot. And, and a lot of folks have seen reform, have seen reform used as shuffling the decks, but the cards are all the same. And, and it is changing the form it is reforming it, but it's not fundamentally different um is the idea of reform of the SBC something that that's on the table for you that that, that you that you would hope happens uh do you hope that the SBC continues to exist or, or do you think this is something that needs to be wiped clean or that reform can be, Enacted and that word used and and had that mean cleaning house so to speak and saying truly yeah. reforming the thing, changing the power structure if mm-hmm. if that could even happen.
2: Yeah, that's a it's an interesting word. You're exactly right. You've already gotten it part of uh, the the definition of that word. That that the there's a when you say that something should be reformed you there's there's uh, inherent in the use of that word is the idea that the form itself is is useful in some way right that uh, otherwise you'd be talking about destroying something right if you if you don't destroy if you don't reform it maybe you should destroy it because the form itself is inherently broken It, it it is incapable of being reshaped in any way that makes it a net positive or a net good Um, I think that there is, um, I am, a, as a Christian, I'm, I, I see myself as a person of hope. And so my hope would be that the, that the SBC could be, um, reformed in such a way that it would become a net positive. Uh, if I were putting my savings account on that, I would say, no, 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 the fix is in my guy. The fixes and systems are in place and there and there is it is it is a controlled and closed system. And I am not actually sure that reformation is a plausible possibility uh, for the SBC. So then you say, oh, so you want to destroy the SBC? No, I'm not sure that I want to destroy the SBC either, because there is another option, not reformation, but revelation not just reforming, but revealing. Mm. And what we are having happening, what, what is happening right now is rather than just destroying the SBC and letting all of the cautionary tales that are existent in that system slip quietly into the night, we are seeing in public view the full revealing of the corruption that comes with patriarchy, the corruption that comes with people who are intoxicated by power, the corruption that comes when people who are uh, who happen to identify as gay, people who are women, are shut out of the system, and you have a boys' club that runs rampant. Uh, you have now, I think, the full revelation of what happens when systems like that are perpetrated. And I would say it might be that the most good that the SBC could serve is to let us all see in uh, not so protracted of a time, the full truth about what that system does and who it harms. And uh, that's what's happening right now.
1: That is that is a word right there. And I want to put a plug in for our listeners. There's a, a June 7th, 2022 episode of Saved by the City that uh, Jonathan co-hosted with, I understand, is your friend, Roxanne Stone, who's a, who was a past guest on our show as well. Where you guys talk about um, the SBC and and the big report, which you called the biggest news story, the religion news story of the year last year, which I think you were probably right because the Protestant, uh, the the SBC Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country with I, I think fourteen million members or something like that. But I that episode was fascinating to me because of because of the tension like you know what what you said just now about you know obviously there's evil horrible things going on it has to be confronted it has to be revealed but you still have memories of those people that helped your family and and sweet people at a, a barbecue or a church potluck or, or people that helped you personally out or your family out. And I imagine there's so many people, maybe all of us to some extent that live with that tension of people who did really nice, kind things to us, but also like there's people out there who were, who were abused by other people in those systems. And that episode, I just such a, such a fascinating tension to, to work through and how to think about all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, you know, I, I noticed on your, um, uh list of books that you've written you have another book that i have not read it's called jesus is better than you imagined um what's that book about this was several years back um what was your pitch for that one
2: you know this book was originally titled god of the unexpected and the idea is that the only thing that we can expect or one of the only things we can expect to be true about god is that god will transcend our expectations And so where do we look for a God who comes in floating ax heads and talking donkeys and burning (laughs) bushes that never burn up? We look for God in the places we least expect to find God. And um, so, which for me in the end was at church. Um, However, (laughs) it was also looking for God in doubt and looking for God in sacrilege and um, looking for God in tragedy. And um, it was, for me, it was a, a kind of a year-long pilgrimage to find Jesus in the nooks and crannies where I least expected to find Jesus, and that book is really kind of a story um, about that. In fact, that's the book where I first wrote uh, about being outed. What I, I probably wouldn't write about it in exactly the same way um, today, but I wrote that book in the, in the months, um, after being outed. And so it was very fresh on my mind. And, um, you know, that was a chapter where I was really trying to find God in honesty and, uh, that, that God shows up, whatever you believe God to be, that thing, that reality will show up when you tell the truth, when you tell the truth about who you are, um the scary truth the truth that's maybe not in your best interest to say out loud god shows up and i've continued to see that prove true in my own life we're certainly finding going back to a previous question we're certainly finding that to be true when it comes to things like sex abuse scandals um you want god to show up you tell the truth um and you tell it you tell it all of it the unvarnished version of it um, and when we don't live in alignment, and when we hide things from ourselves about ourselves, um, we find that we are in need of God, rather than um, in in God's presence. Um, in in the way that that we mean that, obviously, we're always in. And uh, Richard Rohr says that there is no other place we can be. You can't not be in God's presence, um, but we're not always present to the presence and um when we are dishonest when we lack integrity um we are not present to the presence and so that book is really about what does it mean to be present to the presence in our everyday life and i tried to explore that i think in about 12 different arenas
1: very cool well um thank you so much for being so gracious with your time just really enjoyed this conversation with you and hearing more about your story and and thoughts about things going on out there in the religion world. So uh, where can people find you if they don't know already on the Internet and wherever else?
2: Well, you, you, as you mentioned before, I'm I'm less on Twitter than I used to be. I'm on there sometimes. I pop up, I pop my head up sometimes when I when I just feel like being abused. <laughs> um, but uh, other than that, they can True find me.
0: SBC kid, True oh, SBC kid, you
2: know, it's Stockholm syndrome. Uh. So uh, yeah, I would say uh, look for me on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. Or you can go to my website jonathanmerritt.com, where. You can sign up for my newsletter every week i send out the top five religion stories that you need to know along with a book recommendation and so i would love to connect with people uh in my faith and
1: culture five newsletter all right so so great. no chance no chance we're going to get him to come out of retirement and to be a twitter gladiator again i guess so <laughs> we're not
0: interested in in gladiatorial stuff yeah we talked about that see we, we promised no arguments
2: Listen, I'll come out of retirement if you pay the therapy
1: bills. Ooh, <laughs> that, it does seem, it does seem fair. It I'll seem pay fair.
0: the <laughs> therapy bills if you can figure out how to to get me uh, a whole white pie from Pizza Suprema, uh-huh. um, because <sighs> it has been too many years since I've been to New York, and I, I have a friend that every time he's there, he, he posts a picture and tags me in it just to rub it in my face and it's killing me man it's killing
2: awesome. me <laughs> since since the pandemic a lot of places i bet if you looked on gold belly you might find i bet you would actually find it on gold belly but it would cost you about 80 dollars a pie so <laughs> um and, but that's cheaper than therapy so congratulations
0: all right all right I'll, I'll take a look and get back to you if this seems like all this right. could work out <laughs> wonderful all to right. meet you
2: hey thank you guys so much i really appreciate it it's been my pleasure.
0: Well, Dave. Hey, Zach. That was really nice talking with Jonathan. Man, uh, he
1: is a, a brilliant guy. I mean, just a, a fascinating conversation. Um, by the way, we are recording this on March 1st, 2023, and it is your birthday.
0: Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's been mentioned a couple times, almost to the point where I was going to ask that we cut, edit it out, because... Uh, it may have been mentioned on the previous episode that the next day was my birthday, but it's no, going to be a really confusing week apart. Yeah.
1: I, I don't know. <laughs> I thought, I thought we were mentioning that before recording though. That's why I bring it up here in the outro, mm,
0: okay. but, um,
1: but I, I will not sing for you as you would not like that. And I don't think our listeners would like my singing voice. I thought about asking Jonathan if he had a singing voice to maybe sing for you, but at any rate, I, we, I'll wish you, and I, I I, would take it most of our listeners would as well, <laughs> a happy birthday.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, if anybody wants to get me something, uh, a review of the podcast, uh, five stars only. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would appreciate it. It'd be nice. Yes. I think that that still matters. I think, you know, As we increasingly become uh, slaves to AI, I believe the the algorithms look at recent, how many recent reviews you've had.
1: (laughs) Well, at any rate, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you'd like to get podcasts, as that helps others find our show theoretically. Um, we also have a Patreon that you can sign up and support this show for as little as $1 a month. We would very much appreciate that. We both have day jobs, uh, but every little bit helps the show. We, we work hard on booking guests and reading books and doing all that good stuff. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And you can visit his website, Muzak.VanCamp to see what kind of musical stuff he's been up to.
0: Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Can I just... It's my birthday. Can I share my... This is my moment of bliss. Absolutely. So I, I want to share with our... I've been watching this real on instagram over and over and over that was shared by amy sedaris and listen for the way this woman says salad bar um nobody in human history has ever said salad bar like this chicken and dumplings, chicken spaghetti, eight different vegetables, seven different desserts, and a salad bar. Remember, everybody's special at Jesus Christ is Lord. Hit it one time, Brother
2: Catfish. Why not hurt? I brought you <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wow. So, thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. The podcast is free. You still need to tithe 10%. And we have a salad Oh, my God.